Welcome to The Collector's House, a Matches Fashion Podcast. I'm Danielle Rodoichin. Each episode features a conversation with a creative mind about the things that inspire them or that have given their life meaning in some way. From books, to art, to a piece of jewellery, these objects are collected into a cabinet which resides in physical form in the attic at 5 Carlos Place, the Matches Fashion Townhouse in London. My guest on this episode is the American filmmaker and writer Miranda July. Best known for her film You, Me and Everyone We Know, she prides herself on defying labels, pivoting from live performance art to footwear design to creating a dating app for Miu Miu. We sat down to talk about her new film, Cajillionaire, her new retrospective book, as well as some of her heroes. I should also add that the episode was recorded in Los Angeles in February 2020, before the coronavirus pandemic had become widespread. Hi Miranda. Hi. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Yeah. It's the first podcast we're recording at Freeze LA 2020. So I'm very pleased that you've agreed to do it and that we're here and recording at Villa Carlotta um, on a really nice sunny afternoon. It feels very relaxed. It does. Should we just like go to sleep? (laughs) (laughs) You're sitting on a very comfortable velvet sofa. You're on a poof. I think this isn't quite as comfortable as what you're on, but um, it has potential. But you're just back from Sundance. Right. Not just now, it's been a few weeks, but you're where you you were showing your new film? Yeah, Cajillionaire. Um, Yeah, so that... Tell tell me a bit about it. I haven't seen it. Well, no, no no No. one has. Don't worry. (laughs) Um, uh, Yeah, it's about a, a family of kind of very low stakes con artists um uh Richard Jenkins Deborah Winger and um Evan Rachel Wood plays their daughter and kind of about um the the change their life takes when they meet this woman on an airplane played by Gina Rodriguez um so it was really exciting (laughs) and I what does what's the name all about what's Kajillionaire um I don't, you know, it's one of those things that hopefully sort of resonates by the time you get to the end of the movie. Um, and for those who hasn't haven't seen the movie, it it I always feel like a name should sort of um, like open the door for you, like let you walk in. Like a good name sort of invites you in. So that's all it really needs to yeah. do. Because I think is that like the seventh movie you've made, you directed now. Oh well, that I guess if you're counting like every single short movie and stuff it's really only my third feature yeah. film but yeah let's go with seven yeah <laughs> um and has your has your directing style evolved in that time i mean are there things that you do differently now to what you were doing at the beginning yeah um i think in some ways it's it's more like i've accepted my style rather than feeling as though there was some way right way you're supposed to do it i mean it's um it's an odd thing because you never really see, like if you're an actor, you take acting classes and you act with other people and you see how other people do it. You're very isolated as a director, so you can easily have the vague sense that you might be doing it wrong. Um, and by now, I guess, I realize that doesn't matter. Um, it's it's like, you know, your own voice. Like you just, you can't really 
change it. You can learn some things, but um, but it's such an innate thing. And I think for me, it really ties to writing. Um, and I'm actually writing the whole time I'm directing. I'm like taking notes and give it, you know, like I, I'm it all still sort with, of... It all begins with the written. The sure, written yeah. Can I write yeah. the script? Yeah. Because you've written books as well, obviously, so. Right. Um, and you wrote the script for this film? Mm-hmm, Yeah. And as I explained to you with this podcast, there's a kind of format where we, in at the space in Matches Fashion that I was just telling you about, our space in London, we have a cabinet in the attic. It's kind of a cabinet of curiosities. And everyone who comes on the show, we, we ask them to think of five objects that they would put into their cabinet that best represent them. So what would the Miranda July cabinet of curiosities look like? Oh, okay. Well, I mean, I thought it was things that like influenced yeah, me. That have, Can it be that? Yeah, exactly. Because what t- represents me, I mean, that's a, a different thing. Oh, okay. Um, can yes. it be things that influenced me? Hundred okay. percent. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, well, I, I I thought about this, and I'm trying to be really <clears throat> like honest. Um, one thing that would be in the cabinet, maybe the only thing that's like a- actual objects, would be the things that my brother made as a child. Um, he's older than me, so. Uh, he was a child and I was a younger child watching him make things first out of um, like twigs and seeds and pine cones and Elmer's glue and eventually out of sort of found wood and then and then really beautiful um, like hardwood and um, and he made me a dollhouse and a actual two-story playhouse um, in our backyard with running water. This is in Los Angeles. Um, no, this is in Berkeley, California, um, in the Bay Area. And I, I guess something something of his would be in there because he was the first person I saw um, making, thinking of things to make, wanting things to exist. You know, we and we grew up very, sort of in a very non-materialistic um Household, you know, there wasn't like tons of buying of new toys, um, and he, he would think of things, or we would think of things that we wanted, and we would make them. I would help him, and uh, that was sort of a very practical kind of art education um, for all the different mediums I work in, um, and and so sweet because it was taught by a fellow child you know my brother like it wasn't it it was like a um, horizontal teaching not a handing down Um, and so I think it really went in and I I don't I don't really love to be taught any other way so that would be one thing so you're from this from California Mm -hmm. you've been here um, I think you all your life and um, I think you're except for the ten years I lived in Portland, Oregon. Yeah, right when you were in doing my twenties. Your, yeah. your, your performance. Well, yeah. maybe, maybe talk a bit about that—the performance art you were doing. Um, I mean, I still perform, um, but it's true that I I really began with performance because that's what was available to me. I wanted to make movies, but it I didn't have the technology, and and back then it wasn't you know it wasn't something you did with your phone. In fact, your phone would do nothing because it would be a landline. That would be a ridiculous thing to try and make a movie on <laughs> a telephone. Um, uh, so I wrote plays, and initially they were um, it, uh, almost a little bit traditional. Like my first 
play, which was um, based on a, a correspondence I had with a man in prison. Um, I wasn't in. I scripted it. I um, I cast it with with real actors. So it was adult based actors. on a real yeah. correspondence. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And this was in in high school. Um, and actually, am I supposed to say my other things in the cabinet as I go? Because this can. dovetails. Yes, yeah. well, that'd be perfect. Yeah, I was thinking actually, um, and I've never—I don't think I've ever mentioned this—that another influence um, was that m- there was one year that my mom bought tickets to um, Berkeley Repertory Theater, and um, and I don't remember much of it, but I remember seeing a Carol Churchill play called Mad Forest. Um, about the Romanian Revolution. Anyways, um, I remember this one part where a, a woman held her mouth open, and like, um, like classical music came out or something. There, something like that, and it it struck me so hard. And I think it was the beginning of. Um, of thinking, okay, well, it's it's not a movie, the thing that I and everyone else has have grown up on, but it's got something in the moment that um, it, it is really essential and wouldn't be possible in a in a movie, frankly. And um, and so when I began making plays, which was in high school, that first um, play about the correspondence I did when I was sixteen or seventeen, I was you know that um those theater tickets were were, you know were really uh influencing me and i think it was you know just probably a few months later that like punk entered my world um which is why i ended up putting on that play at at gilman street this sort of seminal all ages punk club um but it really was something um quite a bit more traditional that that first inspired me to to make that play Mm. I suppose punk in a way is a bit like what you were do, t- t- talking about your brother making as well, that whole do-it-yourself right. mentality. Right, right, yeah. yeah. Um, and so talking about the art and the filmmaking, we've mentioned the writing, and so this word multidisciplinary is this word that gets mentioned around you a lot, and um, certainly in all the you know pieces that I read about you, um, and I know it's you, re- you are someone who resists tags, um, but I was thinking about this whole idea of hybridity, which seems to be so commonplace these days, and people seem to be, you know, a something slash something slash mm-hmm. something. Um, and do you think that the culture is just catching up with you at this stage? Um, no, but I think we are by nature, um, like people are hybrid, right? We have all these senses. We, you know, we pick one thing to focus on and then we have been encouraged to specialize in that. Um, But I don't think that's innate. Um, I don't think we're like that when we go home. I think we're all, you know, multidisciplinary. Um, And so in some ways, I think the technology, because of it's a it's a commercial um, prospect it wants to plug into as many parts of us as possible it's not it doesn't just want to be visual it wants it wants to be everything um it's trying to plug into the whole human and so kind of ironically um it's bringing forward 
that multidisciplinary thing. I don't I don't think it's it's that um, like Apple is so holistic. You know, I think it's more that <laughs> Apple will take every opportunity they can get to make money. And um, and it, it, so what's happening is there's young people who um, have um, explored their their whole selves to some degree on the computer. Um, and so they don't, the division would be arbitrary. I mean, you're not going to cut up, you know, it's like you've had GarageBand and you've had iMovie and you've had, you know, it's mm-hmm. like why the, um, so it's, it's funny. And I, and I, you know, there's probably some other thing coming in there, like, uh, just like the looming apocalypse, you know, things, things that will, kind of force you to think um, more globally or more um, in terms of the whole instead of parts. But um, I would I think the technology is the main thing. Um, it's definitely not me. Mm. I mean, another thing, about te- <laughs> another thing about technology is that it's enabled the internet, which I suppose, I mean, some people would say has kind of killed, um, has made everything so homogenous and has killed any sense of individuality certainly if you think about style and style tribes you know people Mm. have access to everything now so quickly and they reference things and um you know copy things so quickly um but you seem to sort of manage still to inhabit something that feels quite um countercultural and in a way and maybe in an indie world that doesn't i feel almost doesn't exist so much anymore do you feel like that i mean i don't know what indie is i don't uh like um maybe indie's not the right word i just maybe offbeat or not not mainstream right i don't know it's kind of you know i think these divisions again are sort of created externally and always placed on people for someone else's benefit um and i mean i know my friends i don't think you would consider them all indie directors or the actresses and it's, it's one pretty small town you know um like we uh we all know each other that di- I, I don't think it's um do you mean the director's town directors or, Hollywood? or actors or musicians right. like it's not it's not like all the indie people are hanging out together <laughs> in one place Damn, or that, i thought there might the, be somewhere yeah, <laughs> that'd be the one cool spot yeah. it's, it's not really like that like it, it is um in a nice way a lot more fluid. Um, I mean, most directors began as what I think you would call an, an indie director, and I think um, I, I don't know. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I guess maybe the fact that I'm also, you know, a lot of my friends are writers or are working in art. Maybe that's the thing that makes that that feels um, less commercial, but. Um, but not to me. I, I think that's that's. Are you happy to go into side, more of a commercial yeah. world? I mean, is is Kajillion is Kajillionaire? Uh, what would you would you can say it's a, a mainstream commercial movie? Um, I mean, I don't. I, I guess truly mainstream movies right now are like Marvel movies and mm. stuff. But I mean, Focus just bought it. Focus is owned by Universal. Universal is owned by Comcast. It's not like I'm like this inherently pure being mm-hmm. um so yeah i mean i think it uh i always hope that all different kinds of people 
will enjoy it. And and mm. and I'm I'm not even in this movie, so there's no reason why anyone would have to know about me or my work to enjoy it. Mm. What about your third thing that has influenced you? Did oh, you want- right. Um, I was thinking this is. Um, I was just trying to think of a certain kind of woman, and I'm gonna. There wasn't just one, but I'm gonna pick one strong example who influenced me at a particular moment. Um, this woman's name is Rachel Carnes. When I met her, she was in a band called Kicking Giant, and she played the drums standing up really hard. And um, she's kind of beautiful, but wasn't interested in in her beauty and in a conventional way she I remember she used to fill in her eyebrows with a with a sharpie and um, and uh, eventually I became her bandmate and then her friend and we lived in the same house but I guess um, this kind of woman wasn't particularly nice like nice wasn't like a value that was, um, she wasn't ever selling herself or, or, but she was so strongly um, in her own sphere. And I remember sometimes she would go out because our rooms were next door to each other and I would just kind of walk around her room. I mean, I was 20 and she's like maybe five years older than me. I just walk around her room looking at like the the that she kept her cigarettes in and like her her writing and her notebook I mean I wasn't reading her notebook but just her handwriting I can still picture her handwriting and like her sort of cut and paste collage thing she did and um and and I realized like god that was so essential that there were women around me who were so strongly identified with their own aesthetic and their own kind of internal sphere um and just how lucky you know like I um uh so yeah just like hats off to Rachel Carnes and um and Kathleen Hanna Bikini Kill and like other the the other women that I met at that time um because I think that seed was planted pretty deeply in me uh that 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 being appealing kind of didn't was somewhat arbitrary you know like the, mm. the thing that mattered most was that you did what you wanted to do, that you were, um, then, and that you knew what that was. Mm. Up till that point, had you always, had, did you, do you feel like you'd been um, conditioned to be, you know, that tr- traditional trope that women always feel they have to fit, fit into of pleasing and being nice and likable? No, I mean, I grew up in Berkeley, which is a pretty radical city. I, you know, I was a punk. I, um, you know, dated women. I, I, I don't think I was exactly like um, groomed to please. Uh, but I just think, um, I just think that those were pretty extreme examples. Like I actually, now that I'm older, I'm like there. I, I don't think I've met that many women that extremely self-creating since. Um, and that, uh, so that that's all I'm pointing out is that uh, you know you you meet someone um, that strong and it has a strong effect on you. Not not that I was like um, 
walking around uh, spinelessly around her, just that it, you know, I absorbed it. Mm. And you, you have a new book. I have a new book. Which is eponymously titled, it's called Miranda July and published by Prestel, which I've seen, a, I, I've read, I read a little bit, I, re, I read it a bit in a kind of printout version of it, so I had a look, but I was just thinking about what we've been talking about and me chucking around those multidisciplinary labels at you, but you know, I think you've said that this book is some way explaining all these different facets of what you do. Um, and it's certainly, I mean, it's beautifully laid out for a start. I don't know who did oh, the art direction, yeah, but I Chris love Benson, yeah, I, I mean, love it, it. it looks even in a, on a, I only saw it on a screen and I yeah. did think, wow. And um, I know, you know, you, you seem to have kept and collected so much of the ephemera and um, objects from your past and they've just been really beautifully photographed. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's been a long time coming, a, a monograph of my of my work to date, um, uh, in the sense that I ridiculously began a personal archive as a child, only because my father did. Um, I'm not. I, I think just because he's a bit grandiose and and I love that. Um, you had your own little yeah. So life. I just thought that's what you did. I was like, well, if he's not throwing away his letters, I'm not going to throw away mine. It's very like know? Andy Andy Warhol yeah. style. No, in fact, yeah. yeah. At a certain point, I you know when I think when I was a teenager, I read about his boxes and time I time capsules, time yeah. capsules, and I've been doing that since. Um, <laughs> so it's. Uh, so there was a, a point as I, you know, I um, began working on the book where I remember calling Julia Brian Wilson, who, who actually interviews me um, in the book, and saying, wait, should I include stuff from, from the archive? Like, there's sort of an unlimited amount of stuff, so that, that would be quite hard to go, go through it. Um, and she was like, why else have you been keeping it your whole life? <laughs> Is it just for some sort of posthumous thing? You know, and I was like, no, no, I, I have no idea. Actually, it wasn't a, a conscious thing. Um, and I suddenly realized, yeah, this would be so silly not to now take the time for the first time ever and go through all these boxes. And oh my God, it was, I mean, I don't know if you've ever like, like when you move or when you, clean out or something you know you end up going through stuff and it's it's just like you're moving backwards in time and everything slows down and it's very hard to make progress I mean I and every day of last summer was like that for me and I would come home and and be from my studio and be sort of amazed that I was married and had a child <laughs> because I had spent that whole day you know being 21 or whatever and a, a stripper you know I um I was like wow I really pulled it together <laughs> <laughs> apparently because you guys are here and um uh yeah um and so that's you know I selected you know as you said and photographed um bits from that archive and then I the the other big choice was um rather than having curators or academics write essays about my work, which is traditional in an art book, to have my friends and collaborators um, who knew me and worked with me at the time of each project to um, speak about it from their point of view. Um, and 
that was labor intensive to say the least. Um, I mean, that's zillions of hours of, of interviews done. You know, I couldn't do it because that would be weird. My, my assistant <laughs> did it and, um, and then transcribing and then pulling out you know, the pieces for the book. Um, but the goal was to make it something you actually wanted to read because I think um, not everyone buys $50 art books. Um, I'm sure you can get it for cheaper. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, and I, I, uh, I wanted everyone to feel like they could, as well as just looking at the pictures, that they could sit down and actually read it cover to cover. Um, and therefore, it had to be relatable and interesting and mm. and not you know everyone was told like I'm no praise you know like if anything we're looking for what didn't work or what I didn't know or what were failures you know because that that's the part of the story I always want to read like we know you're amazing that's why there's this book or you know when yeah, I'm yeah. reading books about other women I'm like tell me what happened like how did this happen um so I tried I mean you can't what, did you feel comfortable reading all those oh, it was, comments it on was your so personality? It was so disorienting. Um, no, no, not <laughs> at all. <laughs> that would be a no. Um, but, uh, you know, I think I saw it as like a any other work, like piece of work, like try and make this good and, and really pretend almost that it's about someone else. Um, and I, I do have, I do say things from time to time in the book. Um, I remember that my first draft of that, my a friend reading it and saying like, wow, you're you're really, truly terrible at talking about yourself. It, it, these are the most boring parts of the whole book. And I had to, <laughs> <laughs> I had to really um, work at that to think what, what might be interesting because the truth is the work itself. So what kind of things are, the, are these interesting things? Oh, the would more interesting say, things. Yeah. Well, I think I I try would try to remember like where was my head really at it, at that time, and I would try and speak to that. Like what was exciting to me, um, uh, or what was painful, or what you know. Um, as opposed to yeah, my, I think my first attempts were were just sort of like descriptions. Right. <laughs> um, uh, and the problem is like for me. The, th the things I really want to say, they are in the work. Like the work is the best example, um, the best version, and you, I can't really reduce it any better than that. So I, you know, when I spoke, I had to um, almost sort of regress slightly to that time and try and speak from that place. And can we talk about the, um, the symbols on the cover? Mm-hmm. What that means? Yeah. I think there's a few, I mean, I tried to kind of represent uh, like all the different mediums on the cover. I, I think there's um, the back and forth for, I think there's the back and forth forever symbol, um, which if you've seen my first movie, Me and You and Everyone, uh, we know, everyone we know, um, you know that that's sort of a child's idea of what sex might be this kind of um almost like an early emoji um and there's uh the logo of the charity shop i had a um an interfaith charity shop presented by art angel in selfridges in london um and uh and then 
Um, what else is there? I think I, there's a bit of writing. I just took a piece from a short story and put it on the cover. Um, and the, the font that my name is in is from my app, somebody. Um, that was the app you did with Mew Mew. Yeah, so, yeah. To tell, quickly explain a bit about what that because um, I think people who listen to this podcast would like to hear about okay, that. Okay, so the app, um, when you if when you delivered a message through somebody, it was a messaging app, um, your message was delivered not by you or by the app, but by the somebody user who was nearest the friend that you were trying to message. So that person would um, get a a little notification on their phone being like would you like to deliver a message it's this many feet away and you could get to this person through gps um and then you had a little script and um to perform and the script could include you know like directions like crying or laughing or hug or you know ask for their telephone number or whatever whatever you wanted to write um and uh and so this really happened. Um, this app really existed. It's sort of hard to believe Did now. people actually um, do it? Yes, all <laughs> over the world. I mean, we had, you know, I think at one point, a few hundred thousand subscribers. I mean, enough that in any major city you could use it. Um, Amazing. And it was really the most exciting thing to deliver a message or to receive one. Always utterly startling, but always just kind of this amazing experience with a stranger, which was what it was meant to do. It was meant to be inefficient um, and to create this feeling of sort of giddy surprise. Mm, and emotion and closeness, physical yeah, closeness, yeah. which is so rare these days. Yeah. Uh, what about another object? Oh, do you have yeah. any more? Let's see. Um, well, I wanted to... Um, I was thinking of like who also who after after the Rachel Carnes era like who really influenced me most next um, the artist Harold Fletcher and if it has to be an object that that we put in the cabinet I or thought it could of, be a photo <laughs> of Harold <laughs> it could be a photo of Harold um, I'm thinking of a piece he did and this is sort of by way of explaining his work I remember um, we were. We were walking around in Portland and there was, you know, when people have like garden gnomes, um, there was a broken garden gnome in, in someone's yard, his neighbor's yard, and a, and a sign that said something about like, you know, please stop breaking our garden gnomes. And, um, and he, uh, he talked to the people and they said, yeah, you know, no sooner do we put another one out than, than they get smashed. And, um, and uh the neighborhood he was really interested in the neighborhood and, and it was a really diverse neighborhood unusually diverse for portland and um and the neighbors all knew each other and were were kind of friendly and he he did a thing where he um called all the neighbors together on a day and photographed them front and and in profile and then had a sculptor make garden gnomes of everyone in the neighborhood and those were all put out in a in a long line where the broken one had been and it was a little bit like if you want to mess with me you have to mess with this whole neighborhood like we are all standing here um and uh i just thought that was kind of so beautiful um and you could put one of those in the cabinet um, the garden gnome, yeah. and yeah and his his work 
um, uh, really almost always has to do with community and and very often just the exact community that he's in, like not finding some more exotic community, but literally that was just his neighborhood. Um, and that influenced me a lot. Um, and and he's a friend to this day, and we did the project Learning to Love You More together for, for seven years. Um, Do you want to explain a little bit about what that was? Yeah, um, that was a, a piece in the early days of the internet before um, before it was common to like upload things like uploading was just something you might do with a document not with like artwork or, or music um, and we we gave assignments to the public art assignments and anyone could do the assignments follow the directions and upload the results um, which were in various different mediums the, the finished work and then all that work, as long as they followed the exact instructions, was posted. And um, we did more than 70 assignments. Um, and there's more than 10,000 pieces of work up there. And they're all similar, but really different because people are really different. Um, and uh, the idea, well, you know, examples of an assignment would be. Um, like recreate an argument you know that was one that you might video with someone and you would you would you would write down a real recent argument and then act it out and then sometimes we sort of leapfrogged off assignments i think that one was initially write down an argument and then the next a later assignment was recreate someone else's argument um uh but you know or record the sound that's keeping you awake um uh, or take a picture of your parents kissing. Um, yeah, all, all different. You know, all different ones. There are some examples in your book of. Right, there are. What about um, getting dressed and style? Mm. It's the first time I've met you, um, and you look great. And I've obviously only, only seen photos of you previously, but you seem to have a very kind of eclectic approach to getting dressed and very uh, idiosyncratic. How much? Do you, are you thinking about self-presentation and how much of a form of self-expression is fashion for you? Yeah, I mean, I love clothes. I always have. Um, sometimes I think of it as like my one thing that's just purely pleasure, you know? Mm. It's Because um, uh, almost anything else could be my work, you know? But um, clothes aren't. And I... Uh, Sometimes I use them almost a little bit like an antidepressant, like all no one will see me because I go to my office and write alone all day. And yet I'll be dressed in a way that um, maybe other people would think of as like dressed up. <laughs> um, and that's just because uh, maybe I can tell I'm about two feet away from getting really depressed. And I know that like anything, anything that I can draw pleasure from is is worth worthwhile and worth the trouble um do you keep your clothing in the way that you keep other, do you have t clothing time capsules um it's funny i i don't have a huge closet and well i have a whole room but the, that's pretty huge <laughs> it's not big enough um and so i'm constantly having to edit it and give clothes to my friends um that said i realized um i was in in all this 
discussion of my archive, I realized what I have done is all the significant outfits, um, like what I wore to accept like my first prize at Sundance, which was the cheapest $10 thrift store dress, you know, or what I wore to can or whatever, like those things I've kept. Um, there's a lot of, uh, there, there is um, a whole box of just things that I don't know, like I, um, like I'll never forget those days and, and uh, yeah, the, the clothes aren't necessarily that remarkable, but something significant happened in them, yeah. Mm. Did you have a fifth final um, The fifth was just gonna be like when I think about my whole life, um, I think that my friendships with women, like having really, really close friendships um, with other women is the thing that's kind of seen me through my whole life from when I was, you know, so little and I'm still friends with my best friend from second grade, wow. Monet, um, to now it's still like the most intense thing now, you know, the most exciting thing. Um, and, um, you know, some of those women are mentioned in the book. Some of them I, I made work with, but for the most part, it's really just about long conversations that we had together. Um, and just kind of that working out of ideas, um, and of who you are and of what you feel and your relationships, um, and ambitions and, uh, terrors. Um, that to me is kind of, um, I, like my saving grace, like, um, I don't know what would have happened without that. And what else have you got? So you've got a big year coming up. Yes. By the sounds of it with your movie out and your book coming out. Um, are you just going to be promoting that or are you already thinking about the next project, next thing right. you're doing? Um, well, I, I, in the simplest sense, I tend to alternate between movies and books so now I'm writing a book um and that's such a long slow boring process a, no a novel or a, a novel yeah um but it's it's important to do because um it is a practice you know and like even though it's all I always come to each medium um sort of feeling like a novice because it's always been many years since since I did it um uh, nonetheless, something is accruing over time, um, uh, and that's interesting. Um, and and it's not easy at all. But I I I still I love it so much. Yeah, mm. I mean, writing is. Uh, Do you find it is it a re, is it relaxing for you or is it more no, stressful? No, not at all. <laughs> it's it's like a high speed car chase when it's going well, um, and just. Um, what do you do for fun? For fun. Um, well, like <laughs> those conversations with women, those are yeah. pretty fun, yeah. um, which aren't always, I mean, like my ideal conversation is like, you know, 20% super intense. Maybe one of us is crying and at least 15% like talking about like our bodies or our clothes or, you know, like there, it, it needs... It, it, um, you need sort of different densities for it to feel like a full 
meal. Like, and I always, I need like no less than five hours, really. <laughs> Anything shorter than that is like, you really feel kind of hampered that's by time. That's just the canopy, yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, I think that's a nice place to end. And Miranda July, thank you so much for yeah. coming on the podcast. It's been great having you. Thank you. That was an episode of The Collector's House, a Matches Fashion podcast. You can find more episodes and more about Five Carlos Place on the Matches Fashion website. And you can join the conversation on social media by searching for at Matches Fashion, at Matches Fashion Man, and the hashtag Five Carlos Place. Thanks for listening.